So you've now been sitting a full three days. Does it seem longer? Shorter? Time gets a little elastic on retreat. You've been tasting uh, a bit of the meal that I spoke about on the first night, that paying attention in this moment-to-moment way is really tasting beginning to taste the flavor of dharma, beginning to find its spicy parts and its bland parts and its ucky parts and its yummy parts. And this meal you've been tasting, I feel, will continue to nourish you long after you leave here. The dharma has this uh, impact on our lives, which is sometimes not predictable, sometimes rather subtle where we don't see the obvious uh, effects right away. But maybe when you go home, you'll notice something has shifted, and you won't even know how. The Dharma is, uh, Dharma practice, it is said, is a gift which keeps on giving. As long as we do our part and put in our time on the cushion, it nourishes us. It is like a well that never dries up. That's been my experience of some 25 years of practice. It still is uh, an incredible, fresh, ever-renewing source of uh, wonder and insight and compassion. So it's a wonderful journey you have embarked on. Tonight I'd like to talk a little bit about um, the, one of my very first retreats and some of the experience I had at that retreat and what I learned from it by this practice of mindfulness. This was a retreat in 1980 and it was my first long retreat. It was my first three-month course in Barrie, Massachusetts back at the Insight Meditation Society. I had sat one shorter Vipassana retreat, and feeling very inspired, I just decided to leap into three months, having not a clue what I was getting in for. Of course, if I had known, I might not have leapt quite so enthusiastically. By that time in my life, I had uh, a PhD in clinical psychology. I felt like I had journeyed into the mind, and, and, you know, I had done a lot of work on the past, and I felt I sort of had a, you know, handle on things. <laughs> so I was really surprised when, not too long into the retreat, sitting and walking in silence, fear arose. Fear. Me. The PhD. <laughs> and it wouldn't go away. And I couldn't figure out why it was there. Here I was, you know, in this beautiful setting, like here, in a protected, safe environment, wonderful people, wonderful food, totally taken care of, nothing to do all day but sit and walk. There was nothing objective to feel afraid about. I couldn't understand it, and I couldn't make it go away. As I said, this was in 1980, and I will tell you more about what happened with this fear, but first I'd like to go back a little bit and tell you what I had been exploring before I got to this retreat, 
It's my first mindfulness retreat. Before that, in the 70s, I, uh, who knows how, kept meeting and bumping into and getting teachings from a number of different Tibetan lamas. It seems like in the 70s there was a, a huge um, a parade of lamas who began to come to the United States bringing this treasure of Dharma with them, having had to leave Tibet. And they brought these amazing teachings with them. And it was all very exciting. It was very mysterious, exotic, powerful. I went to the Karmapa's black hat ceremony and felt all this amazing energy and transmission. And I met, I did teachings with Kali Rinpoche and Dingo Kinsey Rinpoche and Sogyal Rinpoche and Tartang Tulku. These were all wonderful teachers. But I was clueless. I knew it was powerful and I knew it was something about it was very compelling, but I really hadn't a clue. I was clueless in Dharma land. <laughs> and, but quite open. So when a friend of mine said at some point, I think it was 75, 76, a friend in L.A. said, um, I'm going to go sit a Zen Sashin. Would you like to come along? I said, oh, sure, that sounds fun. Let's do it. <laughs> Again, quite clueless as to what I was getting myself into. So I ended up at Mount Baldy Zen Center, which is outside of Los Angeles, with one of the great Zen masters of our time, a man named Sazaki Roshi. He's a classic, um, what you might think of as a classic Zen master. He was about 70 at the time. I think he's in his hundreds now. And he used to threaten us that if we didn't get better, you know, he was going to die. Um, that was one of his methods of <laughs> encouraging his students. Um, now he's still alive and still going strong. So I, I toddled on up to Mount Baldy and was introduced to a Zafu for the very first time. That was a very amazing thing to learn to sit on one of these round cushions. I was given my uniform for the week, the robe, black robe. And then we started the sashin. It was a seven-day sashin, and the schedule was very rigorous. The wake-up bell was at three in the morning, um, and there, there were no options at this retreat, by the way. They were, everybody had to do everything or you were out of there. There was no, well, I think I'll sleep in. No, that didn't happen. Um, by 3.30, we were expected to be in the chanting hall, where we would chant in Japanese for a half an hour to a drum. Ma, hu, ha, hi, hu, hum, ha, hing, ho, really fast. Now, it, <laughs> again, you know, it was the Heart Sutra, which is a beautiful sutra, but I, in Japanese I wouldn't have known what we were chanting. <laughs> and it did have the effect of, of waking you up. It's a very refreshing kind of thing to do at 3.30 in the morning. <laughs> and at 4 o'clock we then ran to Suzaki Roshi's room for our first of four interviews for the day. 
every day. We saw him four times. And we lined up, and when our turn came, a little bell rang, and we were meant to run in there, bow, do the bow, sit down, face him, and receive the teachings. And the first teaching I received was a koan. And this, as I think Deborah mentioned, is a kind of question they use in Zen to um, sort of defeat the thinking mind and evoke a more intuitive response. So the question that he asked me right off the bat at four in the morning on my first day there was, um, what is your Buddha nature when you hear the sound of a bird? And I think my response was, I beg your pardon. (laughs) Because nobody ever had asked me anything like this. And I was truly, again, quite clueless as to what in the world we were, where we were going. You know, where would we go with this question? This was a question that I just had no reference point for whatsoever. So you can imagine... um, what it might have been like for me to go in there four times a day, every day for seven days, that's 28 times (laughs) I had to go in and deal with this question in front of this very fierce Zen master. It was challenging, to say the least. Now, looking back, I can have some perspective on the understanding that was being attempted to to be evoked, but at the time, I truly was clueless. Now, in the Zendo, things weren't much better because we had to sit in a very rigorous posture. Any of you who have done Zen know what I'm, what I'm speaking about, where the, the posture is, is very precise. And your, your arms, your hands, your back, your knees, your legs, eyes, even your tongue have to be just so. If not, they come and correct you. There's no moving about. There's no little, you know... I got shouted at a lot, I remember. (laughs) Stop moving. Stop moving. The main instruction I remember was stop this, stop that, stop, stop, stop. Because it seemed like whatever I was doing, it was wrong. And it was wrong. (laughs) But I couldn't help it. And eventually, at some point during that week, it was so hard, it was so demanding, that at some point I just started wailing. I started crying, and I couldn't stop. I call it my Zen nervous breakdown, <laughs> because it was so, it was such a push for me. And I, so I started crying, stop crying, stop crying, stop crying. I couldn't stop crying. There was no way I could stop crying. <laughs> so eventually they came and sort of carried me out of the Zen though. And they took me into this little side room, and they said, now, now, dear, you know, you've probably had enough of this. Maybe it's best that you leave the retreat and go home. And that just arose. All my stubbornness came up, and I said, absolutely not. I'm going back in there. (laughs) And I did. I went back in, and at that point, I felt much better having had a good cry and managed to get through the end of the retreat. But at the end, my arms, I must say, I could hardly straighten them. They were so... (laughs) (laughs) sort of in this position for a few days. After that, I um, wandered into another Zen center, which was a little softer, a little less uh, physically rigorous. A wonderful uh, teacher by the name of Maizumi Roshi, who I really felt a great fondness for, 
And I still didn't know really what Zen was or what it was about. I don't remember uh, too much instruction at this Zen center. Uh, the main one I remember was at the beginning of each sashin, somebody in the zenda would shout, die on the pillow. <laughs> and I would think to myself, yes, this is important, I'm going to do it. You know? And I would sit down with great determination and great inspiration to die on the pillow. But of course, I had no idea what to do. There I was, just getting tighter and tighter. So then finally, around this time, I happened to meet Joseph Goldstein. And he was the first Westerner that I heard speak the Dharma. He was the first person who was more or less a peer, a person of my generation. He spoke English. And he gave a beautiful (laughs) talk on the Four Noble Truths. And I was just like, wow. I understand this. I can actually hear what it's about, you know, finally. <laughs> so I, that's when I signed up on, for my first Vipassana retreat and ended up at the three-month course. And I was so relieved to finally get an instruction that I could actually do. Follow your breath. That was like, wow, I can do that. I can attend to the breath and follow it. So... That was uh, a real um, revelation. Now, um, it took all of this to sort of convince me that practice was not about finding amazing states, you know, these amazing mind-altering states that would forever change my life. That didn't seem to be the direction. The Buddha's journey also um, took a few interesting turns. He spent a number of his years of seeking, going to all kinds of different teachers and taking on practices that were quite extreme, very ascetic practices of not sleeping, not eating. And he tried, and he was very good at all of these practices, but he felt that they didn't bring him to the actual understanding and freedom which he intuited was possible. So he kind of exhausted his seeking. He kind of exhausted his effort. And at some point, he remembered something from his childhood. He remembered a time as a child when he was sitting in the meadow outside the palace where he lived, sitting under a rose apple tree on a summer day, just kind of relaxed and very at ease. And he had a kind of mystical experience of unity, of oneness with all things, of no sense of separation from life. And he remembered this at a certain point, and he felt intuitively that that was the direction that he wanted to go in his practice. So with the memory of that, all of his seeking for different forms of experience fell away. And he resolved to, I think how he spoke the other night about the Buddha's resolution, to sit down and 
discover for himself the truth. And eventually this came to be known as the middle way. The middle way between extremes. Discovering the treasure, the wealth that lies in not seeking on one extreme or another, but learning to be with the uh, moment-to-moment arising of all experience in the heart, in the body, in the mind. So, finally, on my first three-month retreat, I began to find a way to practice that really uh, was my middle way. All of my ideals about practice and many of my romantic notions of practice fell away, and instead I was left facing fear. (laughs) Sitting, walking, and allowing and beginning to understand how to work with mind states. For me, the training ground was uh, working with this stubborn and tenacious fear. Because I couldn't figure it out, I, of course, went to the teachers and asked their advice about it. And I was a little bit amazed that they, they actually said that I should stay with it. You know, like, I couldn't quite believe that was the instruction. I thought there must be another way, just as many of you, you know, may hear when we're, we're asking you to go right into the pain. It's like, are you crazy? But then you begin to do that, and you discover that there's a lot to be learned from doing that. So I spend a lot of time with fear, exploring it with my attention, going into it in just the ways we've been talking about here. And although I don't remember any one dramatic moment when it all vanished, I know that over some days that the fear eased considerably and eventually disappeared. And that from that experience, my relationship with fear was forever changed, was forever transformed. Basically, I was no longer afraid of fear. And that was huge. I came to understand through this moment-to-moment mindfulness the actual nature of fear. Not just my fear, but fear as a universal human emotion. Because when we go into something in ourselves, we are actually seeing how it is for everyone. Perhaps the story is different, but the actual manifestation is, it, it is quite similar for all of us. How fear arises, how it manifests, how it seduces the mind. I also learned a tremendous amount about mindfulness itself, about what it means to explore a tenacious mind state with this simple tool of mindfulness. I learned uh, that mindfulness is not casual, it's not superficial. I want to tell you about three aspects of mindfulness that might help you in your practice, to help you understand the power of this tool that we are um, teaching you. 
There are three aspects of mindfulness which I want to talk about. One is what is called its characteristic, one is called its function, and one is called its manifestation. The characteristic of mindfulness is non-superficiality. Non-superficiality. This means that mindfulness is not casual. It is rather penetrating. It is like a light that we can shine deeply into our experience that helps us see below the surface of things, below the appearance of things. For example, when we work with pain, as you were this morning, something we, we, we feel something and we call it pain. And in that naming and in that, that moment of saying what it is, we feel that there's something very solid there that needs to be fixed. When we bring mindfulness to it, in the way that Deborah was instructing us, we discover instead that what we call pain is actually a field of ever-changing sensations, a field of movement and change that we can explore with mindfulness, that we can bring our attention right into. The second aspect of mindfulness is called non-disappearance. And this, what this means is that we keep the object of our attention in view. We don't try to avoid it. We keep returning our attention to it. We keep looking over and over again. We don't just look once and then decide to do something else, but we keep returning our attention to it as long as it's present. We don't pretend it's not happening. We keep it in view. We say, let me go further into this experience. Let me see what it is. Let me explore it. The third aspect of mindfulness is called confrontation. Confrontation. What does this mean? This is the aspect of um, bringing our full energy and attention to this exploration. So we're not only uh, looking deeply, we're not only keeping the object in view, but we are bringing ourselves to meet it. It's like we're stepping forward into the experience rather than resisting it or trying to, to keep it at bay. Where it's the willingness to meet what is there with a wholehearted attention. So this is kind of what happened with fear. I kept, through the guidance of my teachers, I kept bringing mindfulness into the fear in just this way. And I saw all the ways that fear manifests. I saw that fear is a story. And it's always a story about the future. Some thoughts appear in the mind that tell a story about what may happen in the future. Even if the future is five minutes away, it's always a projection into the future. I also saw that fear manifests as unpleasant sensations in the body. 
fear is usually not a pleasant thing to feel. We feel it in the body as unpleasant sensation. There's also this aspect of fear that really is important to know, which is that fear has this incredibly um, convincing way of presenting itself. It's very convincing. It's easy to buy into what it is telling us. It is easy to believe it. And it is a huge shift when we can recognize that this is just the voice of fear. It's not reality that it's speaking to us about. It's just fear. In fact, I used a little uh, note when I was working with fear. I think one of my teachers suggested I note fear whenever it was present. So I would, I started doing that. I started saying fear, you know, a little note in the mind, fear, fear. But I found that made me even more afraid. (laughs) So yeah, I'm really afraid. So I started using the note instead of just fear, just fear. That helped me to see it in perspective. Just a little cloud called fear moving through. And of course, some of the more important things I discovered about fear, one, sometimes it was present, sometimes it wasn't present. Sometimes it's really important to notice when something isn't present. We think we are completely caught by something, and then if you actually pay very close attention, you'll see there are moments when it's completely absent, and then it returns. So to know that fear comes and goes, it's not permanent, it's not solid. Another thing that uh, was a big learning was that Fear, um, part of its convincing um, story is that it seems to be telling you that something's terribly wrong with you, and you better fix it. So part of what I learned about fear was that, and what really helped in working with fear, was in seeing that it wasn't that something was terribly wrong. It was just fear. This is what fear does. It tells us these stories. But if we can see it just as fear, it's not as big a problem. We, we release ourselves from a tremendous amount of suffering when we can see it in a more impersonal way. Another aspect is the, in which is true of any mind state, all of these, these things I learned are true of any mind state, that when we resist experience, we actually are creating more suffering around it. That the greatest suffering is in the resistance, not in the actual experience of fear. So in seeing fear in all of these ways, I learned a lot about the power of this very simple moment-to-moment practice of mindfulness. I also learned that all the parts of fear had to be seen, not just one or two, but really all these different parts of fear had to be seen, not just the unpleasant sensations, but also the beliefs in the mind about it, 
In order for it to fully release, all the aspects of fear had to be seen. And once they are known, they are known. Then this is called knowing the nature of fear. This is called making friends with fear. It's like getting to know somebody really, really well so that you're no longer surprised by what they do or what they say or you're not upset because you understand. You understand. You have an intimate relationship with them. I also had to see that it was okay to let go of the fear. Because there's something about fear or any mind state that has been with you on retreat for a while, you, you begin to kind of start recreating it. Okay, I sit down, I breathe for five breaths, and then I feel fear. You know, you kind of get into these habits. So I had to also remember that it was okay to let it go, to let go of the struggle, that the struggle could be gone. What a concept. The struggle could be gone. So working with fear in this way, there really did arrive a greater sense of acceptance, of compassion, and a lessening of, of struggle. And it was kind of like a melting. When there's no longer struggle, there's a sense of reconnecting with the flow of life being back in connection with, the, with life in a, in a safe and gentle way. Now, I'll also tell you some of the things that I learned that are not so helpful in working with fear or with any state. And one of them has already come up on this retreat, and that is asking why. Why? Why so much fear? Wanting to analyze, wanting to find reasons. When we ask why, it seems like we are attempting to feel more in control in a funny kind of way, to to reassure ourselves um, that we are living in an ordered and, and logical universe, that if we just know why, we can figure it out and everything can be explained and there will be no surprises. We like to be able to control outcomes. We like to be able to predict what's going to happen next. And somehow knowing why seems part of this um, uh, attempt. There's a man named Brian Swim. Maybe some of you know him. He's a cosmologist who lives in the Bay Area. He has a center called the Center for the Story of the Universe. And he's a wonderful teacher. And uh, I heard him give a lecture once in which he said that um, the universe, you know, is an incredible story. The way it has unfolded, how life has unfolded in this corner of the universe. And there's a lot they know about it. There have been people studying this for a long time. So it's very fascinating uh, to open your mind to this this, uh, view of life. But he said, you know, if there was one person in the universe who could um, 
comprehend every event that had ever occurred in the unfolding of life in the universe, if there were such a person, still that person could not predict what is to come next. I think that's rather an extraordinary statement. There is this basic element of unpredictability in the universe and in our own lives. The play of conditions and the unfolding of cause and effect is so huge and so complex that it is impossible to predict what is coming next, not even in our own minds. We are embedded, I like this word now, I'm using this word a lot, embedded, ever since the the journalist became embedded. I'm, I'm using this word because there, there's some goodness, I mean, about this idea that we are embedded in an immense and ultimately mysterious unfolding process of causes and conditions. On retreat, as we open and we loosen our control over what we allow in, to be experienced and connect more and more with the present, we discover that our, uh, our experience unfolds moment to moment and that anything can appear at any moment. You probably have already in some way noticed this. We sit down, we begin to follow the breath, when suddenly out of nowhere a great wave of calmness descends and you just feel, oh my gosh, here it is, you know, wow, this is great, you know, and you ride the wave of calmness for a while and then suddenly you're gripped by a hunger. Oh boy, lunch, I'm getting ready, I'm hungry. And then maybe itching, itching, itching and thinking about, oh, did I get bitten or... Maybe I've got poison oak, and then a few more thoughts about lunch, and am I getting enough protein here, and maybe I should go jogging, but it's too hot, and I wonder what we'll have for tea, and you know, a whole little stream of little thinking comes floating through, and then suddenly calm returns, and you're back, whoa, calm, I like calm, let's stay here, and then suddenly fear arises, and you wonder, where, why, why am I feeling for, what am I, what am I supposed to be doing here, and oh, why, what was that insight I had this morning, and suddenly you can't remember anything, you feel like, oh my God, my mind is going, I had this amazing insight, now it's gone, and now I'm hot, God, it's hot in here. Oh, it is so hot. Hot, hot, hot flash, hot flash, heat. Ah, air conditioning. And then you're back to calm again. You're just one thing after another, all unfolding. And no one is making this happen. It's all happening by itself in this mysterious unfolding universe a spontaneous play of causes and conditions unfolding. And we're just riding the waves. So to ask why, the Buddha said, this is one of the imponderables. We just never will get to the bottom of it. So best not to go there. Better to ask the question, what? 
What is this I'm experiencing? Where in my body do I feel it? How is it manifesting in my thoughts, in my mind, in my heart? How is this peace or worry or fear or grief showing itself? Exploring the what is the direction of our practice, not the why. Rumi wrote a poem, Who makes these changes? I shoot an arrow right, it lands left. I ride after a deer and find myself chased by a hog. I plot to get what I want and end up in prison. I dig pits to trap others and fall in. I should be suspicious of what I want. Achan Shah uh, was a Thai master that Jack Hornfield studied with and other teachers in this tradition studied with. He had a monastery called Wat Pananachat in Thailand. And in that uh, monastery, there's a, a sign. And on the sign, it says, if you are still following your likes and dislikes, you haven't even begun to practice Buddhism. Gets right to the point, Achancha. And this is what the Buddha discovered in his own investigation. The power in the mind of liking and disliking, of attraction and aversion. And he went even further. He discovered the chain of causation by which everything in the universe gets created. It's called um, dependent origination. And it's a very subtle and complex explanation of how things come into being. For our purposes, there's one piece that's really helpful to know. And this is what is called the moment of contact. The moment when a sense door comes in contact with the outside world. We have these sense doors, eyes, ears, nose, tongue, touch, and the mind. That's considered a sense door in Buddhism. When any of these come in contact with the external world, this is called a moment of, this is called a moment of contact. The ear comes in contact with a sound. The eye comes in contact with a sight. The body with a sensation. The mind with a thought. In each moment of contact, there is a feeling tone which arises, a feeling tone of pleasant, a feeling tone of unpleasant, or a feeling tone of neutral. Every moment of contact, this feeling tone arises all by itself. It's not like we decide, I'm going to have a pleasant sight now. It just arises by itself. Now, what the Buddha observed in his own practice and what he taught was that a pleasant experience at any of the sense doors, a pleasant sight, a pleasant sound, a pleasant thought, leads to, I like, I want more. It may lead us to act on that desire, to try to have more of that experience. 
an unpleasant experience at any of the sense doors, an unpleasant sight, an unpleasant taste, leads to, I don't like. I want to not have that. I want to avoid that. I want to get rid of that. A neutral experience, neither pleasant nor unpleasant, often leads to a kind of spacing out, just not noticing what is present, not actually connecting with the experience at all. You're eating your food, and you're just, it's kind of good, kind of not good, it's just sort of neutral, and you're just, you, you think your way through lunch. You eat your thoughts rather than the actual food. So there is a sutra in the uh, Pali Canon, the Sutta Napata, that says this. For some people, the moment of contact, the point where sense plus object meet, is enthralling, and so they are wasted by the tides of being, drifting along an empty, pointless road. Nowhere is there any sign of broken chains. But others come to understand this sense activity, and because they understand it, the stillness fills them with delight. They see just what contact does, and so their grasping ends. They realize the total calm. So this moment of contact is considered the definitive moment as to whether we are enacting either freedom or bondage to our liking and disliking. It is a very interesting point of practice to begin to notice these feeling tones of pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, and see where they tend to lead you, where they tend to um, incline your mind. In Buddhist psychology, based on this pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral, it is said there are three types of people. The greed type, is driven by the pleasant experience. They will, have, they will notice a predominance of pleasant experiences. The aversive type is driven primarily by the unpleasant experience, the unpleasant contact. And they are driven to avoid things, to try to get rid of things. The deluded type is driven by the neutral um, feeling and tends to kind of um, space out and not be entirely here. There's an example sometimes given is if you, all three types were to come into the same situation, say a party, the greed type comes in the door and they immediately see everything they like and what they want. And they set about, you know, finding that for themselves. The aversive type, same party, same situation, comes in and immediately sees what they want to avoid, what they don't like, what they think could be improved, what they'd like to get rid of, and they set about in that direction. Whereas the deluded type comes in the door, and they're kind of like, what's happening? 
And it is said that all of us are predominantly more one type than another. And it does seem to be true. You can begin to notice in yourself, in your friends, what type is predominant. It's just a, 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 it's a kind of fun way of playing with this understanding. It's also um, recommended that there are antidotes for each of these uh, predominant tendencies. And I'll just mention them. The antidote to greed, if you're a greed type, the antidote is the practice of generosity, practice of letting go, of appreciating what is good and giving it to others. For the aversive type, the antidote is the practice of loving kindness, practice of uh, cultivating love for the world, not uh, aversion for the world and for people. And the antidote for the deluded type is awakening clarity, beginning to see more clearly what is actually going on, not spending so much time theorizing, philosophizing, and sort of not being here. Now, all of this is in the service of bringing greater balance to, into our experience. Whenever we can notice pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral as a... a something that is happening in our immediate experience, when we notice that, it has a balancing effect on the mind. And balance is a liberating factor of mind. We learn as we practice the skillful use of bringing attention to both the pleasant experience and the unpleasant experience. For some people, um, it's very helpful to bring more attention to the pleasant. If, you're, if you have, a person is very aversive, if a person is caught in a lot of fear, if a person has been traumatized, if a person is carrying a lot of grief from the past, it is very helpful to very consciously bring attention to pleasant sensations, pleasant thoughts, pleasant sounds, as a way to bring more balance to the experience. On the other hand, those people who tend to go into denial around suffering, around the unpleasant, it is very helpful for them to be encouraged to have the courage to open to that which is unpleasant, to that which is difficult so that they too are not so driven in one direction. So we often find our way in this practice by going to one extreme, going to another, and then coming back into a more balanced view. And eventually what we discover is the great middle ground of life in which 
we don't need to go to extremes. We begin to explore the actual treasure that is found in the great middle ground of things, where there's not an extreme view, where there's not an extreme um, effort, where there's not an extreme sense of, I'm a terrible person, or I'm a wonderful person. But somewhere in the great middle is found a great deal of wealth and treasure. When we go to extremes, it's like we are looking for solid ground, an object or an experience or a belief to attach to, which will shore up our sense of who we are. But it also keeps us from falling into the not-so-obvious, ever-present ground of just being alive, just being here, moment to moment. The direct intuitive opening to this ground of being, sometimes called our true nature, sometimes called emptiness, it has many names, basically cannot be named. But when we are able to find the balance and the uh, willingness to surrender, we find that nothing is missing. There is nothing which needs to be added nor is there anything which needs to be excluded. We don't need to run after what we want. We don't need to get rid of what we don't want. Everything as it is, is okay. We could call it a desireless state of being. And it is, this state is, is, uh, found in moments. It's found uh, sometimes um, on retreat, sometimes not. We, we each have to discover it for ourselves. No one else, no words, no books, no teacher can give you this experience. It is part of the great discovery of this practice. And certainly one of the ways we discover this is by opening the willingness to open to all the 10,000 joys all the 10,000 sorrows, allowing them all to be known in our practice. Then and only then do we see that the joys are not it and need not be clung to, nor are the sorrows a big problem to get rid of. I'll close with a, um, a story and a poem a story about Hafiz, the great poet Hafiz, who practiced all of his life with one teacher. And he was 60 years old, and he said um, to his teacher, he was getting discouraged. It had been a long time he'd been practicing, and he said to his teacher, Look at me, I'm old, my wife and son are long dead. What have I gained by being your obedient disciple for all these years? His teacher gently replied, Be patient, one day you will know. Hafiz didn't want to hear this. He shouted at his teacher, I knew I would get that answer from you. <laughs> In a fever of spiritual desperation, 
he decided to do a 40-day retreat. And he drew a circle on the ground and sat within it for 40 days and nights without leaving it for food or drink. On the 40th day, he heard a, a god speak to him. And the gods asked him, Hafiz, what do you want? Hafiz, in that moment, discovered that during this 40-day retreat, all of his desires had disappeared. He was amazed, but he couldn't find one desire. He replied instantly that his only wish was to serve his teacher. So he wrote all these marvelous poems, and I'd like to end with one one he wrote. We have not come here to take prisoners, but to surrender ever more deeply to freedom and joy. We have not come into this exquisite world to hold ourselves hostage from love. Run, my dear, run from anything that may not strengthen your precious budding wings. Run, my dear, from anyone likely to put a sharp knife into the sacred tender vision of your beautiful heart. We have not come here to take prisoners or to confine our wondrous spirits, but to experience ever and ever more deeply our divine courage, freedom, and light. It takes divine courage at times to do this practice, to sit moment to moment with all the arisings of mind and heart. So thank you for your attention. Let's just sit for a moment together. This talk was given by Anna Douglas at Spirit Rock Meditation Center on June 27, 2003. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed Audio. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.